Welcome to Work and the Future, a podcast about tomorrow, with your host, Linda Nazareth. Hello, and thanks for joining us today. The pandemic has changed many things, among them the state of mental health in the workplace. Now, things were not perfect before the pandemic. There were definitely stresses and people under pressure. But lockdowns and having to manage in a different way and work in a different way definitely took their toll. Now, we're at a different point now, but a lot of people are still struggling or trying to figure out how they best should be working and best should be managing people. And that is creating all kinds of issues and organizations have to figure that out. Because if you don't have people who feel their best and are at their best, you're not going to get their best from them. I wanted to get an idea of the state of things and what organizations should be thinking of in terms of helping workers get through it. So I'm happy to be joined on this episode by Bernie Wong. Now, Bernie's the principal and senior manager at Mindshare Partners. That's a nonprofit focused on workplace mental health. Mindshare has done surveys on the state of mental health, and they've done them at different time periods, 2019, and then during the pandemic, and then more recently. And so their findings kind of give us a picture of how things have changed, and that's really interesting. I had a great conversation with Bernie about what's going on and what should come next. I thought I learned a lot, so please stay with me to hear it. state of mental health in the workplace. To talk about that, I'm joined by Bernie Wong. He's principal and senior manager at Mindshare Partners. Bernie, thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, happy to. You know, there's so much to talk about here. Uh, you put out a new report, I know. But I just like to ask my guests about their own backgrounds a little bit. How did you end up interested in this area and working for Mindshare? Yeah, definitely. Um, mental health has always been a lifelong passion um, and interest career-wise for me. I've managed chronic depression for my entire life and have had the very fortunate privilege to translate that into a career. So prior to Mindshare Partners, um, I was at a social innovation lab based in the San Francisco Bay Area called Hope Lab and got to work with nurses, college students, high school students, um, business students or even teachers around developing solutions and tools to develop resilience. And after my master's program at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health, focused on mental health, really found myself as a founding team member with Mindshare Partners, really focused on how mental health shows up at work, whether it's the workplace, workers generally, or even our ethos of work, and how it intersects with so many parts of our lives. Interesting. So you have a new report I know you've put out. Tell me about that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Mindshare Partners has um, conducted by Anil studies. Um, we call them our mental health at work report, each one in partnership with Qualtrics. And no one could have predicted the pandemic, but we were in a fortunate place where we conducted the study in 2019. That was our inaugural one in 2021, kind of still during the pandemic. And then most recently in 2023, we launched our latest report in October. And so we got quite an interesting uh, perspective from pre, during, and post-pandemic. And each study collected nationally representative samples of 1,500 full-time U.S. workers. And also each study included statistically significant sampling from historically underrepresented and marginalized populations. That includes women, people of color, LGBTQ plus workers, and more. So when you say you're trying to figure out, you know, what mental health looks like, what are the measures you're using to, to get an idea of this? 
Yeah, definitely. When measuring mental health specifically, we use two measures. One is a general clinical screener um, to just gauge um, whether people are experiencing a variety of mental health symptoms, ranging from symptoms or experiences of anxiety to depression to you know, OCD or PTSD. So that's just a general screener. Um, again, not diagnostic, but helps us get a glimpse of the prevalence of general symptoms. The second measure we use is much more simple. We simply ask um, folks to answer on a scale of one to 10, how would you rate your overall mental health out of 10 in the past year? And we found really interesting findings, which we'll probably get into later, um, but how these two different measures of prevalence of symptoms and self-reported subjective mental health sometimes aligns and sometimes differs. Okay, well, let's start with the second one, because I think that's easiest for people to understand on a scale of one to 10, where are you? Tell me how that's changed pre-pandemic, during the pandemic, and now. Yep. Going from our 2019 to 2021 report, so that's folks entering the pandemic, arguably everyone's going a little bit through their own mental health journey. Um, we saw that both measures, those overall ratings of mental health and those symptoms of mental health, both worsened. So more symptoms lasted longer, and those overall ratings of mental health also declined, um, very understandably so. But moving from 2021 to 2023, as people felt like they were exiting the pandemic, for those symptoms, we saw less symptoms, actually, which we kind of say that quote-unquote sharp edge of the pandemic waned. So that acute experience of mental health symptoms also declined. But those overall ratings of people saying, just how is my mental health overall, also continued to decline. So it was around, I believe, 2022 that the organizational psychologist Adam Grant coined the term languishing, which I think really effectively captures that experience of, yes, I'm not experiencing those acute challenges that swirled during the pandemic, but I'm still not feeling great and I'm not sure why. Well, everything wasn't perfect in 2019 either. I mean, what was yeah. the state of things then? Yeah, we kind of describe workplace mental health and workforce mental health in 2019 as relatively nascent. Um, employers were primarily talk, tackling workplace mental health through kind of a very conventional, traditional approach of providing access to therapy and mental health insurance and benefits and all sorts. Um, time off was a common go-to as the quote-unquote solution for any mental health challenges. And it was around this time where this burgeoning field of mental health technology, the meditation apps, mindfulness programs were really growing. Um, and we're seeing really over time and demonstrated in our study how these are kind of insufficient. Um, our general thinking around these things are that they are foundational table stakes. Absolutely, do not do away with them. But they often teach or equip people to kind of cope with the challenges of work or maybe mental health challenges they're bringing from outside of work, but fundamentally not about burnout, which is based in the work itself or how um, workplaces can actually determine and cause mental health challenges. None of those resources actually solve them because they're coming from work. Well, that's an interesting point. I had another guest on this subject recently. I was trying to think about are we asking here about whether work is causing mental health to deteriorate or are we asking whether there's an issue with mental health and that's causing issues in the workplace? I mean, which do you think it is or both? It's definitely both. Um, but increasingly, when you ask workers, they're talking about work itself. Um, we actually asked in our most recent study in 2023, what were the biggest negative impacts to their mental health? And the top two were finances and work itself, a pre-existing condition not tied 
to work was fifth on the list. So they exist. And it was around around 19 to 20%, which kind of aligns with the general rate of mental health challenges in the general population. But it's there, it's common, but not at the top most factors where the top most factors are, again, challenges with finances or just the experience of work, which can be poor work-life balance or inflexibility, not having a voice, all these factors that the workplace controls are top of mind for folks, um, which in some ways I think is exciting because when people bring things from their personal lives into work and it can feel a little bit unpredictable, employers aren't sure how far they should reach in to employers' personal lives, which of course you want to make sure um, they are kind of navigating their own challenges and keeping that separation if that is their preference. Um, So if when there are factors or mental health challenges coming from work itself, that is hopefully exciting. Those are things you can actually control and solve for. But unfortunately, we're not seeing the greatest investments in that realm, especially when it comes to changing the experience of work itself. Employers kind of drag their feet around changing that um, fundamental experience of work and how work happens within their organization. I would argue that a lot of this is toxic managers. I mean, yes, somebody can have health issues in their family and you can't really help them with that, but you could have better managers. And a lot of the time, I don't know that, well, I don't know that there's a lot of support for making that happen. Yeah, definitely. I think we are at this stage where I think there is a lot of conversation around what a good manager is. Historically, it was like promote the really good software engineer into a manager, which in some realms helps if you're thinking about an overarching strategy. But being a manager includes all of these soft human components, um, which I think I read an article asking whether managers should care about their people. And I was like, God forbid you actually care for someone on your team. Um, But these kind of subjective experiences really change the ways in which your people show up at work. If you're managed or even among peers, you're treated poorly and um, kind of constantly navigating an environment where you feel unheard or attacked or all of the sorts discriminated against when we think, think about the intersections with DEI, you're probably not going to show up your best where um, used to a lot of folks, if you actually treat your people well, they are actually willing to put in the time to form well, they're engaged, they're committed, they trust you, all of those things. So I know that's a groundbreaking idea that if you support people, they kind of like you and they're willing to <laughs> put in the time for you. But that's what the data shows increasingly. Do you have any insights into organizations that are doing a better job? Are there common experiences you see where mental health is better and people perform better? Yeah, I would say I haven't yet come across the shining beacon of organizations that are doing everything well, but I am seeing pockets. Um, I am seeing increasingly C-level leaders telling their own stories or at least advocating for mental health. Um, I'm seeing a lot of more interesting and innovative programming around mental health, whether that's mental health training, or I've seen more peer support groups or employee resource groups for mental health. Um, And there's a lot of innovation happening in the resource space. Again, access to therapy, all the self-care resources. But I think the one thing that I'd urge folks to really lean more into is this amorphous culture piece. All of these programs and resources, I think I describe are artifacts. They kind of represent your culture and values, but they in and of themselves don't necessarily reflect the minute by minute, week by week experience of work itself. And 
Sometimes when we read about all these exciting programs and resources, we're tempted to follow in those footsteps. When in reality, I'd say a mentally healthy workplace could be very boring. Like if people just treat each other well, a good, sustainable pace and volume of work, you cannot have any of those like glitzy, glammy perks. And people can be very happy and fulfilled within your organization. So really think about that subjective experience um, around work itself and around mental health and psychological safety. And those can certainly be achieved or supplemented by programs and resources, but don't think as those programs and resources as the end. They're a means to the end, which is the culture piece. But, you know, that's much harder to do, Bernie. It's a lot easier to give people free snacks or something than to say, we're going to create a culture where everyone's treated well. What are the, And I find most organizations want to do this, right? Most people sincerely want to have organizations where people are treated well and you're productive and you get things done. What are the steps you take if you really want that to happen? Yeah, I always start people with a few starting steps. If you're really trying to jumpstart a focus on mental health at work and that culture piece, um, there are a few things I consider. The first is that leadership storytelling piece. This gets at the more psychological safety around mental health piece where, again, historically, mental health isn't safe to talk about people or unsure. And even ambiguity can discourage talking about it. So the more that your leaders or managers, those who kind of hold reputation and power within your organization, the more they put themselves in kind of a vulnerable or authentic situation and tell their own personal connection to mental health or simply saying that it matters, that can at least jumpstart. I can at least set the bar lower that, okay, senior leader, someone who's respected within the organization saying this matters, that can start a lot of the conversation within your org and doing this continuously. Um, the second, which touches on your manager piece, is training. And training, and I would say learning generally can happen many ways. It doesn't necessarily have to be training. But I'd also say it should go beyond kind of the common trend of training folks to notice the warning signs and then send them to resources. I describe that as not crisis prevention, but just crisis aversion. You're noticing the problem that's been there probably for weeks and months and then saying the way to cope with it. But really training managers, people to just how do you create safety around mental health? What are the small allyship behaviors you can do like being vulnerable? Um, what are the ways in which you can navigate mental health conversations in a supportive way? And what are the small things you can do to start building that healthy and sustainable culture of work piece, whether that's flexibility, whether that's work-life balance. Again, this obviously really depends on your industry and your role, but training people and creating those ongoing opportunities to iterate is the second piece. And I think the third, which touches on my last point, is that really culture of work piece. Um, how are we really making the experience of work itself a positive impact? people's mental health. And in our study, the most recent 2023 report, we asked workers and respondents, like, what's most helpful to you? Is it A, treatment, like therapy, all those things? Is it self-care resources, like the meditation apps or the many different self-care resources out there? Is it just a safe and supportive culture for mental health? Or is it just about work, just healthy and sustainable culture of work? And it was that last piece that was most helpful. 78% um, Respondents reported it as moderately to extremely helpful. That was followed by a safe and supportive culture for mental health. And trailing behind were those two last pieces, which are resources. So 
people, again, definitely still see resources as helpful, but what's most helpful are those culture pieces that really fundamentally um, inform their, again, everyday experience of work. When you look at some of the changes in the workplace, like remote work, hybrid work, do you think these are helping or hurting people? I've heard both sides of this. <laughs> I think our uh, our little catchy perspective here, which is informed from our study, is that the answer to hybrid working is autonomy. Um, as you said, there are so many reports saying remote work is better in these ways and in-person is better in these ways. Hybrid isn't better in these ways and all of them have their own challenges. And the way I kind of take those is, yeah, all of the reports, all of the conflicting data you see, all of it is true because it depends. Depends on the individual, depends on the industry, the role, the way, just the culture of how people work together. It all depends. But what we found from our study is that people's ability to choose um, kind of aligned with different outcomes. So in our study, we asked people whether they're working, whether they are working fully in person, hybrid or fully remote. But we also asked them whether they're doing so by choice or mandated by their employer. And hybrid workers who were do who are hybrid by choice had better mental health outcomes, a better relationship to work, lower stigma around mental health, and higher engagement, especially around trust with their employer. And so letting people choose, um, which again, aligns with, hey, maybe like empower and support your people, translates into these positive perspectives, experiences, and behaviors. Um, but as you said, it's hard. And I think sometimes my response to it's hard is, yeah, like the technologies we build are endlessly complex too, but like figuring out how hybrid working works might not be that complex. <laughs> so that's our perspective of increasingly um, when it comes to remote and hybrid work, we have years and years to innovate around where we've spent decades and hundreds of millennia working in person. Maybe give it a second to see just how can we make hybrid work work because it does come with, it, come with its pros and cons for each individual and team. You mentioned technology. That's something I wanted to ask about. We're changing things up technology-wise so quickly. I mean, we have AI coming in, people are going to be working with robots, jobs are going to change. Are you concerned what this means in terms of the mental health impact of this? For me personally, I'm less concerned about technology itself. I just worry about those building the technologies and how it's, it ends up becoming a people problem. Um, I think we've seen AI chatbots for mental health. Um, and I've seen how, yes, that presents an exciting opportunity sometimes because of stigma, people worry about talking to a person. So talking to a robot might actually be more approachable to them, but I've seen how when we use sometimes these imperfect technologies, they have led to folks kind of, um, um, dying by suicide as a result of a chatbot that didn't kind of send them a productive route in their mental health. Um, similarly, there's a lot of conversation around social media and how it can have a positive or negative impact. I think the conversation has skewed negative, but the way I've approached social media has been, yes, it exists. And historically, marginalized identities have found communities online and found a lot of reward. Um, and, but where's the there's a lot of scrutiny around our individual consumption, but where's the scrutiny around the building of the technology of what content gets surfaced to folks? And historically, 
um, kind of incendiary articles that promote engagement, which is how sometimes social media companies make money, those are promoted and those are kind of designed by individuals within companies that have a certain interest, which may not always be the mental health of its users. So that's a layer of scrutiny that I always approach technology with. Technology in some ways is truly a neutral experience, but depending on how it's built and the people who are implementing these technologies can be for the health and livelihoods of people or the opposite. Interesting. Let's talk, go forward, Bernie. If you had to look a few years down the road, it's not going to get less stressful in many ways, right? Companies are dealing in a global environment that's getting more difficult. We are bringing in tech. We are dealing with all kinds of challenges, hopefully not another pandemic, but there's always going to be something. Given all of this, are you optimistic about mental health because at least we're talking about it or are you concerned it's going to get worse? I'm cautiously optimistic. <laughs> I think with the pandemic, it really allowed the mental health movement in many ways to achieve what takes other movements decades to achieve. I think the pandemic almost forced everyone to navigate some semblance of a mental health journey, some mild, some extreme. And because of that, public awareness and literacy around mental health was catalyzed in a dramatic way. A lot more people are more aware. And with that, they're becoming increasingly nuanced in just what they want around their mental health. And we're seeing that um, with people have always liked and enjoyed technologies and all the self-care apps and all the interesting, exciting things. But after a few years in the pandemic and then approaching the future of work or our conversation around the future of work, they're like, oh, wait, those are all nice. But what I want is just to be able to sign off or to connect with my colleagues in a meaningful way or feel supported. Um, or just not be discriminated against those things. And again, those are cultural things which technology and these innovations can lean into. But um, with that, again, people are increasingly nuanced and in their perspectives and also increasingly demanding this. Um, I kind of see the rise in the labor movement in recent years coinciding with the mental health movement too, of when people are approaching their employers as job seekers um, or even current employees and they're asking for things, this is what I want an employer. Those two things of just support around mental health and that intersection with work itself, kind of livable wages, um, uh, work environment where I'm not injured or harmed in ways or the ability to just engage with work in a sustainable way. I see that as, as an intersection of mental health, of well-being broadly, the labor movement. A lot of people are just pursuing these fundamental human needs. Um, and I see that as an optimistic opportunity as people are really kind of scrutinizing what is it um, that work is having in terms of an impact on my well-being and choosing that future of health, of positivity and of good overall. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much, Bernie. Thank you. Bernie Wong is Principal and Senior Manager at Mindshare Partners. That's it for today. If you'd like to know more about Bernie and Mindshare and his work, please take a look at our show notes. You'll find some links there. If you'd like to connect with me, I'm on Twitter, Roxy X, and you can find me under Relentless Eco. 
Now, if you did like this conversation about the future of work, please take a moment and leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. That will help people to find us and that will help keep these conversations going. Thanks so much for listening. And thanks as always to Stokely Audio for audio production. To learn more about work and the future and to see show notes, go to the workandthefuturepodcast.com. You can also contact us at comments at theworkandthefuturepodcast.com. The Work and the Future podcast with Linda Nazareth is a relentless economics production.